Okay. Sorry, I had to make sure I had all my notes with me. Sometimes you lose a piece of paper or two on the way up here, but it happens. Good morning. Good to be with you. Guys all doing all right? Doing okay? Thriving in the name of the Lord Jesus? Yeah. All right. I see that hand. Okay. Let's uh, let's get into the Word of God this morning, uh, beginning with the Word of Prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your abiding Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to give us wisdom, to bring us unity and clarity, uh, to help us to understand your scriptures, which are inspired, which is the very complete, sufficient spoken word of God to us. Uh, help us to have hearts tuned to it, uh, to, to listen, to learn, to humble ourselves before you, that we may walk together in Christ's likeness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so go ahead and open your Bibles, the book of First Peter. We will continue our study in the book of First Peter, uh, chapter 2. In addition to our study in Romans 13, going to take these two in tandem. Let's begin in First Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 through verse 17. Please follow along as I read. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So let's flip over to Romans. We'll camp out there for this morning. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So this is the word of God, it's his authoritative word to us, and it speaks to us very clearly even today. Now, when it comes to our study in the Christian or the church's relationship to civil authorities, we began that study last Lord's Day, and we still have plenty to say. Now, I want to open this by letting you know that this is not meant to be an exhaustive, every situation considered study, okay? There are many good books written on this subject, but what I have to consider here for us today is what is the most important thing we need to know? What, you know we're going to go through the text, we go through expositionally, but there are certain things that we will not cover in depth um, where we perhaps would in a different situation. For instance, if we were studying Romans 
chapter 13, 1 through 7, we would, we would do a good work in that study, and we would take about six months going through verses 1 through 7. We would be as thorough as possible, but that's not our point, uh, either last week or this week. What I want to do is help us understand the text, primarily 1 Peter, but also in light of Romans 13, 1 through 7, comparing Scripture with Scripture, seeing what God has to say to us, and to help us understand very clearly how we are to navigate the current um, governmental authorities who, are, who have been recently installed. We want to navigate that in a godly Christ-like fashion. We want to navigate it by faith. And most importantly, we want to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our primary mission. And so we went through uh, the text of 1 Peter uh, last week and some of Romans 13, um, you know, trying to understand, at the, you know, it just, just moving through it, trying to understand the text. But, I, but as I thought about it a little more, I want to give you guys some application, because I think we gave the basic framework last Lord's Day, but there are some what-ifs, some what-abouts. And without getting too carried away by that, I want to offer you via the Word of God some counsel uh, in regards to situations like this that we can glean from uh, the book of Romans and 1 Peter, where they were uh, interacting daily with uh, a very corrupt form of government. Now, this should prevail upon us as Americans, especially because based on much of our history, heritage, culture, our love for fine weaponry, we tend to have a natural distrust of the government. There's just something about that. We just, you know, we bleed red, right, red white, and blue. Some of us do. But we, we, we like our freedom. We like our constitution. And so because of that, and I'm not saying that love for liberty is a bad thing, it's a very good thing but we still are commanded to walk in light of an ultimate authority, and that is not the Constitution. That is the Word of God. It is Christ Himself. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is the one to whom we ultimately answer. And so His authority rises above even the Constitution. His Word is final. You know, we think about this also in terms of certain sayings. We take seriously the, the quote regarding earthly governments, that which governs best governs least, right? Want to be left alone, self-government, personal responsibility to work with my hands, to, to build a home, to build a family, to, to work hard, to enjoy life. We enjoy those things, and we, we believe that you know, civil authorities on whatever level, the, the, the less intrusive they are, the more we tend to enjoy life. That's just a basic maxim of the human experience. You know, we're also familiar with the saying, the nine most terrifying words an American can hear are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. I mean, we heard President Biden say that recently, help is on the way. Is that help is on the way? Five terrifying words, right? So it's being said, we understand that, but we see a veiled threat to liberty. And we have to understand that we stand in an era today where we have to consider these things in a way that perhaps we never had. These, you know, sayings like these, sayings about government intr intrusiveness. And on one hand, government overreach, especially on the federal level, has long characterized the last 80 or so years. I'm thinking about the era when Social Security started. Today, the federal government governs more than it ever has. It's not uncommon to hear people on every level of society complain about government intrusion, whether that is unconstitutional or ungodly or both. It's simply a reality we have to address from Scripture and a reality we have to contend with daily. 
Because let me tell you, the government comes in with the best of intentions. It wants to be our friend. It wants to help us. And often, it does far more harm economically, socially, and yes, even spiritually when it tries to effectively pay, play God. When it tries to meet all your needs. And a government who tries to supply all your needs will also demand loyalty. And in many cases, even worship. It will demand complete obedience and faith. Another saying, a government big enough to give you everything you want is also strong enough to take away everything you have. And it's true. But here's the thing, as a government that sees itself like this, or is allowed to rule like this, is trying to supplant or usurp the place that God occupies. The fact is, is that God is big. He's all-powerful. And He has given us everything we need. Though not everything we want, but He gives us what we need. He provides for us. And in the terms of strong enough to take everything you have, well, God owns it anyway. And he has a right. He gives, he takes away, right? And our reaction is the same. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's given, he's taken away. That's the God we serve. And so we have to know how to respond biblically and faithfully whenever the government tries to take the position of all power, of all sovereignty, of all authority, and demanding our trust and faith. We have to respond accordingly. And of course, there's so much going on right now, it's impossible to anticipate and respond to everything that the federal government is doing. We're, we're in an era where the, the Fed is pretty much run amok. And so I want to present today, in terms of application, a grid or a framework to help us navigate these unusual times. And I fully expect and I would hope that this is an ongoing conversation within the church and within our families. Because this is what I'm going to say today is not all there is to say on the matter. And, and I will also give one more qualification. I realize that these have been some pretty long messages, and it's in the interest of being thorough. You know, I want to be faithful and, and give you guys enough without you know, saying too much. But the fact is, is this takes time to go through and consider uh, the things of first importance regarding our relationship to the government. So um, that's what I have to say uh, by way of introduction. So in Romans 13, we went there a little bit last week as well as 1 Peter, and one of the main things we found out in, in, in a study like this is that we are, we are dispelling this notion that we are to obey the government until they tell us to sin. Other than that, keep quiet and do what they tell you. That's typically, that's what I heard growing up. That's what many of us have learned. Only when the government tells us to sin do we disobey. But we find that there are other responses that we give. Our response to government goes beyond that, and we'll review that in a little bit. But going to the text, look at Romans 13. talks about subjection. We understand that command pretty plainly. We are to come under the authority to obey the laws of the governing authorities, but there is an important caveat here, an important thing that Paul says. He says, for there is no authority except from God. So this authority ultimately comes from on high. It is borrowed authority. The government, in whatever form, earthly government, does not have autonomous ultimate authority over us. They are accountable to God. They derive their authority ultimately from God because he lets them exist. And those which exist are established by God. 
And then it says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So we understand the, the penalties that come as a result of being disobedient, of engaging in criminal behavior, that God sanctions and endorses those who are lawless. And then note this here. This is very important, so it bears repeating today that in verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. Okay? But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And I think that we would all say amen to that. We would agree with that prescription. And that's one thing we have to understand very clearly about this, is that Paul is not describing the current rule of the emperor. Okay, He's not describing what is a just reign of the current rulers and authorities. What this is, rather than description, is prescription of what God has ordained civil authorities for. We have to understand that as much as we may hate government, okay, in a general sense, sometimes in a comprehensive sense, that God has ordained government, civil authorities, for our good, to keep order. That was something consistent with that is what the founding fathers of the United States of America saw. That man is inherently flawed. He's not a perfect creature, and sometimes his heart is inclined to evil. And that's why they wrote the Constitution the way they did. But, it, but that is consistent with the biblical view we see here. God understands that man is a flawed being. He's inclined toward evil. And in order to keep some semblance of order in this world and to keep us from chaos... He blesses us by instituting civil authorities, but there is a particular purpose behind it. It is to be a praise to the good, a praise to the righteous, and a terror to those who do evil. And of course, the only way to do that is to understand what is good and what is evil. And so last week we, we mentioned in very strong terms that the only way to understand what is good and what is evil is by where? From where? God's word. That is our standard, and once we deviate from that, we lose our standard and, de and descend into all kinds of chaos and anarchy. So what he's saying here is that government is instituted in order that it may function in a particular fashion, and the kind of civil institution that excels in that, that does well, and is consistent with, with, with godliness is a government that we are called to honor and obey. Why? Because its laws will be consistent with the word of God. And we would desire for that kind of earthly government to be in place. Who, what kind of believer would not want a law of the land to be as consistent with what the scriptures say as possible? We, would, we should naturally desire that. But we also find that once this standard is deviated from, Kings or presidents or rulers become tyrants. As soon as they deviate from the word of God as standard of righteousness and the knowledge of what evil is, kings will descend into tyranny because they will want to be a law unto themselves. They will develop a sort of perverse God complex and want to be worshipped. And that is what describes much of the Caesars in the first century and beyond. So he's telling us the way that God has ordained governments to operate. So the question is, how does this fully flesh out? That's the question. What are the applications? 
The civil authorities, the government, whether king or emperor or sultan or shah or president, is held accountable by God to facilitate, listen to this, this is what government is for. It's held accountable by God to facilitate an environment where I can love the Lord my God and love my neighbor as myself. What is the sum of the law? The whole, what does the whole law rest upon? Loving God and loving my neighbor. And so if that's the operating standard, the government that is instituted by God is held accountable to uphold that, to guard that, whether they acknowledge Jesus Christ or not. They are to uphold and guard that environment where I can love God and love my neighbor. And also, it is to punish those who wickedly try to prevent me from doing so. That is the law. That is the law of Christ, the rightful king. And that is the best description of limited government that I have ever heard. couple things. Facilitate the worship of God and the loving of neighbor and punish evildoers. Period. That's a limited government I can get behind. Okay. So it's very limited. And whenever any ruler or elected official steps outside of that, they are, mark this, they are rebelling against God. They are rebelling against God. And we are not bound to passively obey the unjust laws that emerge from a man who does such a thing. And part of this, I would say, this problem, most of this intrusion and tyranny comes not only from without, but also within society itself. And this happens on two levels. On the, uh, in, in the level of unbelieving society, we see the law of God or the word of God, the, go the gospel ultimately forsaken, rejected, rebelled against. Man has forgotten God's word. He's wandered away from it. Individually and corporately, he has denied Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, as Revelation says, his right and claim to rule their lives. I would say even Christians fail to emphasize this. We fail to hold our elected officials accountable, and we are called to do so. There's no shame in that. There's no sin in that. When we speak the truth in love, and we speak it accurately and boldly. And I think part of the reason we are in this situation that we're in is that we lack the courage to defy the tyranny of unjust elected officials and rulers. We have to, call, we have to start calling them out. We have to say, the word of God is standard. You owe obedience and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But this is a problem because we're not doing that. We're not holding them accountable. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton says. If men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they will be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. I mean, have you looked at how big just our tax laws are? You want 10,000 commandments, look at our tax code. Okay. See, the simplicity of God's law, which reveals his love and care for humanity, as well as his design for our lives, has been cast aside. And why you see so many laws, laws upon laws, precepts upon precepts, that are inconsistent with the law of God is because man is now scrambling. He's just scrambling to keep some kind of order and control. But he won't look to the law of God. He won't look to God's revealed word to form his framework for governance. Listen to what Cecil B. DeMille says. If man will not be ruled by God, he will certainly be ruled by tyrants. And there is no tyranny more imperious or more devastating than man's own selfishness without the law. Whew. 
devastating. And I believe that we're in a period of time where we are reaping the harvest of a seed sown long ago and we see wickedness prevail on so many levels, especially in our government. I mean, we've heard, no doubt you've heard the the news of all the legislation and the executive orders that are being passed. This is the reality in the news recently. Biden, Joe Biden's plan, President Biden's plan to restore funding to foreign nations so that they can perform abortions. We're just paying for the world to kill children. Your tax dollars, friends, are being used to kill babies. How does that make you feel, right? (laughs) No, but honestly, that should horrify us. That's what's happening in our country. Here's another thing. We have the Equality Act that's uh, in motion. Few things about this. It would give bathroom and locker room access to individuals based on their gender identity, not birth sex. You w- a man wakes up, a 300-pound man with big muscles and tattoos wakes up and says, I feel that I am a woman. He can, by law, and it's enforced in his favor, use a woman's bathroom. It would also prevent religious Americans from seeking exemptions from provisions of the law under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. I mean, think of the, impl- the potential implications of that. We haven't seen the effect yet, but that could end up having some consequences for what we do as a church. Now, we'll con- we continue to meet. We continue to honor the Lord. We do what we do, but there will be consequences. Number three, it would make sexual orientation and gender identity protected classes under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is just... <laughs> This is, this is awful. It so denigrates the, uh, all the efforts made under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, especially all the, the civil rights efforts that were, that were made and proposed in that time when, when rampant racism was running in certain parts of the country. And to make sexual orientation and gender identity equal toward that form of Racism and that form of dehumanization is offensive to the entire movement. President Biden says or said transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. There is no room for compromise when it comes to basic human rights. So apparently a basic human right is the right to wake up and decide you are not the sex or gender that you were born with. That's what's happening. This is insanity, friends. But this is what's happening. But this is what happens when sin in a society goes unchecked and when elected representatives forsake the law of God and when, the, when believing society fails to call them to account. Scripture warns of this. It tells of this unjust rule. And yet it pronounces consequences on those who rule in such an ungodly fashion. Listen to Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Or 10.1, woe to those who enact unjust statutes and to those who constantly record harmful decisions. We're in the midst of that right now. One harmful decision after another. So, so often, those who are in civil authority ask, can we do it rather than ought we to do it? Is this good? Is this helpful? Is this consistent with God's revealed word? Listen to Proverbs 14. 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. Most of us are familiar with this verse. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Our country is in a current state of utter disgrace because of what is happening. 
but righteousness exalts any nation. Listen to this, Proverbs 28, verse 12 and 15. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. They just don't, sometimes they just don't want to see the ugliness and the terror that's about to ensue, sometimes for self-preservation. Because inherently, the unrighteous despise the righteous. Because the righteous come out and say to the unrighteous, hey, you can't do that because God's word says you can't. This is wicked. And so what do the unrighteous try to do? Silence their critics. Nothing new under the sun, friends. This has always been, this has always been going on. When the unrighteous meet the righteous and are called out for their wickedness, they try to silence their critics. And this is so prevalent today. All of the censorship we're seeing is only beginning, trust me. And listen to this, verse 15 of Proverbs 28. Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Have you ever stood in front of a charging bear? Well, I guess you wouldn't be here if you had, but it's terrifying. It's devastating. It's frightening. Listen to Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous increase, and this is what we desire, the people rejoice. But when a wicked person rules, people groan. And I, and I hope the church is groaning right now. That we've put up with this for so long. We've let wickedness, so much wickedness go unchecked. And so there's a great dilemma here. What do we do when unjust rulers abdicate their responsibility toward God? When they, when they pass laws that prevent us from loving God and loving our neighbor? This is where we have to be very wise and very careful, and this is why I'm giving sermon number two on this. Because the answer to this question, of course, is not to do whatever we want. That's not the answer. Not the answer at all. We still abide by God's word. Any command that is consistent with loving him and loving our neighbor. The church does what it always does. The people of God continue to do what we have always been called to do. Love God above all else and do whatever it takes to love our neighbor and to pursue their highest good. Remember, evil, good and evil are not defined by the state. They are defined by God. They are defined by his word. And those things are upheld always by the people of God. And if the state fails to uphold that, we do not react in such a way where we then abdicate our responsibility toward loving God and loving our neighbor. So this is our application. This is our application. So last Lord's Day, we went over the basics, establishing parameters. So just by way of review, when do we disobey the government? We disobey the government on any level when it forbids us to do what God commands. Secondly, secondly, we disobey the government when it commands us to do what God forbids. I won't repeat the examples, but we gave some of those last Lord's Day. And I also mentioned that all this time, while this is going on, in the spirit of the prophets, the apostles, and all of the godly men who have gone before us, we call out and expose unrighteous behavior of the leadership of our elected officials. And I would say this is a good and necessary task no matter what point of history is in play. And we have to understand, too, that there will be varying degrees of consequence in some form. 
there will be retaliation by the government that does not want to be exposed. Remember, wicked men do not want to be exposed. They do not want to be called out, but we do so anyway. But that evil has to be exposed, so we hold them accountable to govern consistently with God's word. Now, something very important here that we have to understand going forward, okay? So if you remember anything from today, remember this point when it comes to exposing evil. This exposing of evil is always done in a redemptive fashion. Yes, our civil authorities are required to govern justly, but we use God's law not only to expose the sin, but to show God's righteous character, to show Jesus' righteous character and rule. It's not so, so our reproof, our rebuke is not confined simply to, hey, you who's breaking God's word or breaking God's law. You must follow God's law. See, when we are exposing that, we're, just, we're not just telling them what they ought to do. We're actually exposing what they are unable to do. They can't do it. They're inclined toward wickedness. They're inclined toward self-deification. They're inclined toward greed in every form of sin and unbelief without the Spirit of God guiding them. We go beyond simply exposing the evil. We say this, you have failed to rule consistently with God's word and you have violated the standards of King Jesus, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So when you sign, when you sign that unjust bill, do you realize that the, mer- the very molecules in your finger and your ability to grasp that pen are held together by Jesus Christ? You're dependent upon him. And you're abusing that goodness shown towards you. You have violated those standards. Now repent and trust him alone and then rule justly. See, we're not only calling them to obey God's law. We're calling them to repent and to believe in the one who gives that law. To believe in the one who saves. Otherwise, we just create a community of moralists and legalists. And that can be worse, as we've seen. We've seen this all the time. That can be worse in some cases than just outright paganism. Remember, what's the most dangerous kind of person? An ignorant man with a Bible. So what is our recourse? What do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of a society of unjust elected officials passing unjust laws? I think we have some recourse here. I'm not saying, hey, go to that bunker in Montana that you've always dreamed about, or, or move to some, some island out in the South Pacific somewhere. Before you go do that, listen to what I have to say this morning. So what's our recourse? Here's the first thing. And this is specifically in the context of Christian Americans. Remember, we can take, we, we, we can take advantage of our constitutional liberties, however, however slightly in this day and age, but we still have that, okay? And where it intersects with the word of God, where it is consistent, we use that wisely in order to um, expose some of these things and try, to, and try to write them. So the first is this. I just call it recall. I think this is the first and most obvious one is what we call the vote. I think it's a, yeah, may I say it is a good Christian duty to vote. If you do not vote, that in and of itself is a vote. When elections are up, when bills are on the table, you have an opportunity to echo the standard of Scripture in your vote by voting that which is most consistent with God's revealed Word. 
Most legislation isn't perfect, but vote for that which is most consistent with God's character, with God's word. Vote in righteous legislation and vote the unjust authorities out. And no matter what you believe about the 2020 presidential elections, it does not follow that every single item on the ballot is going to have manipulated results. So don't let this dissuade you, no matter what your convictions are, don't let that dissuade you from going on and voting. See voting as a blessing and vote for that which most closely aligns with Scripture. So that's recall. That's the first thing. We can vote. The second is what we call redress. The redress of grievances, that means starting on the local level, go to those magistrates, appeal to them. We have this great thing in the Constitution called separation of powers. So we can appeal to multiple magistrates on multiple levels. You know, localism is a blessing. It's a good thing. In fact, I think in in terms of the vision and mission of Emmaus Road, we want to be effective ministers of the gospel primarily on a local level. I have long held that if we cannot make a gospel impact in Colorado Springs, we have no business sending missionaries overseas. But we we have redress, redress of grievances. We have to realize that some of this stupid and unrighteous decision, these stupid and unrighteous decisions that are made by the federal government do not necessarily have to trickle down all the way to the local level. We can appeal godless legislation on multiple levels. So if you, don't li- if, you, if you see a local ordinance that was passed and you don't like it, instead of complaining, well, you can complain too, but go and, <laughs> go and contest it before the local magistrate. Appeal it. And yes, you can appeal it on the basis that it is against God's word. That's our standard. And that's never going away. Remember we said last week, don't appeal on the basis of conscience. Don't appeal on the basis of your feelings. Appeal on the basis of absolute biblical truth and do it continually. Let them know that they will not simply get away with it, that we will not go silently. We will call out unjust laws that are passed. Again, this is where the church comes in. We should be at the front lines appealing these things. Now, I realize our size, we have limitations. we got to pick which hills to die on. But often, those are obvious. We can see the real big issues, the pressing things, the things that are so blatantly in violation of God's word that we can't just stay here. We have to go and say, hey, this is ungodly. You cannot do this because it violates God's word. And you think of where do we see this in Scripture? Even think of Paul took advantage of his Roman citizenship in Acts 25, 10 through 11. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If therefore I am in the wrong and have committed something deserving death, I am not trying to avoid execution. But if there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, in view of separation of powers, we can appeal to the mayor. We can appeal to the city council. We can appeal to Sheriff Elder. Separation of powers. We have many opportunities and many positions to go and say, hey, this is an unjust law. It not only violates the Constitution, but more importantly, it is godless. It's godless legislation. And as an elected official, you are required to govern consistently with God's word and not stand for this. 
We can appeal, as it were, to Caesar. We can appeal to our governor. We can appeal to our congressmen. We can appeal to our senators. Even if it goes all the way up to the local courts, the federal courts, the supreme courts. And yes, many of these courts are completely godless. We understand that. But the fact is, is we have opportunity to do this. And so if we do, then do it. We have, remember, we have, we have a voice. We have the truth of Scripture. That is our weapon. So that's redress. We've got re, recall redress. Here is resistance. This may not be what you think it is. Resistance. How do we resist? We resist, and this follows from the last point, we resist with truth. This is what we've been underscoring this entire time. We resist by calling out godless laws, refusing to comply with laws, either forbidding what God has commanded or commanding what God has forbidden. So when the government violates this, okay, and we're, gonna, we're seeing this, and this is mostly going to fall on our kids, guarantee it. When the government tells you that you must agree and you must celebrate that a woman is a man and a man can be a woman, that it's okay to dismember a fellow image bearer in the womb, that when they tell you that you must believe that we are blobs of goo hurtling through space on a giant rock, we have to ask ourselves, are they now operating as a minister for good? No. This is, where, this, is, this is the beginning where they start being a terror unto the good, where they abdicate their God-given responsibility to uphold the right to love God and love neighbor. In this case, they are upholding evil, and they want you to comply. They want you to just give a word of agreement. That is the modern-day equivalent of just pinching some incense to Caesar, just complying, just for my own safety and well-being. That's, what the, and that's, that's why Christians got into such trouble in the Roman Empire. They wouldn't give ground. They wouldn't concede that, that Caesar ultimately is Lord. They wouldn't pinch the incense because they knew it was to deny the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ, which we must, in our own day, refuse to do, and in our own form, refuse to do. Because they are upholding evil. And you may respond to this. Well, what about... You know, I don't want to make noise. What about living a quiet life, working with my hands and minding my own business? And I would say that is a good question. What about that text? Well, this is where context is extremely important. That is in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. It says this, First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority. So even if you don't like the guy, if you can't stand your governor, if you don't like your president, if you don't like your vice president, or if you do, you still pray. Pray for them. Intercede for them on their behalf and for their good. But go, going on. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. So this is not quietness of life in goodness and dignity, attached from any kind of context. That, oh, I see evil happening. Well, I don't want to make any noise. I don't want to bring reproach to the name of Christ. You bring reproach to the name of Christ for your silence. Don't do that by saying nothing. That's, so, so the context, of course, is this is why we pray. We pray for just rulers so that, purpose clause, we can live a tranquil and quiet life. So there is a connection to civil governments, but it's not some... Uh, this deliberate uh, distancing between ourselves and involvement with the civil authorities. No, we pray for them because we want to live a quiet and tranquil life. Very, very, very hard to do that if those who are in civil authority are godless and hate what is right, if they are a terror to the good and, they, and they're a praise to the evil. 
So that's how we answer that. But yes, it behooves us as believers, if we call ourselves Christians, to be a light in the darkness. And what does that mean? It means exposing the darkness. Shining the light always means exposing something. So that's resistance. Here's the other one. And we're getting near the last resorts here. Another recourse is retreat. Okay? Say, for instance, that you get a knock on your door. And this is when, it gets, this is when and if it gets really bad. But I'm, I want to give a, 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 I want to supply a for instance. Okay? Say, for instance, the state you are in requires you, they come to your door and they say, hey, uh, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, um, new state mandate that you must put your kids in public school followed by daily classes learning transgender sensitivity training. You must do this or we will come and we will take your children away. At that point, retreat would probably be a good option, a wise option. I'm telling you guys, do not give up your kids. They are your first ministry. Do not let the state tell them what is right and what is wrong. Don't. I love, I love uh, Bodie Bauckham's quote. I'll probably butcher it, but he says, don't send your kids to Caesar and expect them to not come back acting like Romans. We got to protect our heritage. We got to pour into our kids and, and, ra- and raise them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give that up so easily. And we may face a time where, yeah, we are going to have to retreat. You may have to move to a place where you are able to educate your kids or at least give them some semblance of Christian education. Again, with all the garbage that is being spoon-fed and sometimes force-fed to kids these days, this is something that ought to weigh very heavily upon us. And most of us in here homeschool our kids, and I'm telling you, don't give that up so easily. You know, you're, you set the example of what a godly man or woman looks like. That is a huge, not only responsibility, it's a privilege and a blessing that we should grasp, latch onto, and just invest ourselves in. I tell you, I've said it before, but if we, if, if we are faithful, I do believe this, and we are able to, 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 to really pour into our kids and raise a godly generation, so many of these issues we face today will be gone in one generation. Because the next generation will have godly men and women who love the Lord. Why? Because faithful parents train them in God's word. Man, we should, we should jump at the opportunity to do that and not give up our kids so easily to protect them, to protect them from and instruct them against insofar as we are able, this anti-God philosophy that pervades so much of the public school system these days. And if that becomes completely unavailable in our area where we have no recourse, then I would say a wise, a wise consideration would be to move to an area of the country where that is upheld by local and or state government. Why? Because then they are upholding your prerogative to love your neighbor. Who's your face na- first neighbor? Your wife and kids. That's your first neighbor. So it's okay to go to a place where that's upheld. Even King David fled for fear of his life in 1 Samuel 19 and 20. Peter fled after an angel let him out of prison in Acts 12. Did he say, I need to be submissive to the government and go turn myself in, even though this angel let me out? No, heavens no, he left, he bailed. He, had, he still had more work to do. And it was, there was no cowardice involved. He actually did a very wise thing and, had, and went on to continue in an amazing gospel ministry. So that's retreat. And sometimes we, you know, there may be a time where we're faced with that and just want you to know that 
Scripture provides us an option to go to a place where loving our first neighbors is upheld. Okay? That's not, that's, so don't see that as a, as a bad thing. As much as I desire to stay in Colorado Springs with, with, with all you beautiful, wonderful people, you know, there may come a time where even this city, this mecca of Christendom, no longer affords that. Okay? So just to, put, just to plant that seed in your mind, again, it's a, it may be a wisdom issue. So here's the last one, and this will probably be our most belabored point because I know it's, it's on a lot of our minds. We want to know this. So when does the R word come into play? When does revolt come into play? Many of us wonder that because, you know, we have, remember, we're, we're, we're Americans, right? We, we, have our, we have our Constitution. We have our beloved Second Amendment, the right, to, the right to bear arms. We want to know when do we revolt? And here's my counsel. This is my starting counsel. Violence is the last resort, okay? I am not a proponent of anarchy and government overthrows. Violence is the last resort. So there may be some cases where we have to retreat and start over, and that's the wisest option, okay? But sometimes retreat is not available. We have to, we have to take that into consideration. Can't make those decisions for you. But think about for a minute the, um, the context of the first century, okay? Paul, as you well know if you have read him, and Peter, they never brought violence and retaliation up as an option for the church to counter a wicked government. Now, there may be certain reasons why. Remember, first century Roman Empire. You prayed for good rulers so you could live a quiet and peaceable life. You don't rise up and violently resist the empire. And the fact is, if, if, if the church had done that, they would have suffered the same fate in AD 70 that the Jews did. They would have been crushed. What was it? One million Jews lost their lives in the sacking of Jerusalem? And the Christian, and the Christian church, the new covenant church in its infancy, would have been crushed if it had staged a revolt. So what were they called to do? To pray for just rulers so they could live a tranquil, quiet, peaceable life, even though persecution was inevitable? but they were called to simply be faithful even unto death. And as a result, the Christianity continued to grow and to flourish and spread all throughout the known world in that time. They were not called to rebel. And if they did, they would have been killed and hunted down with ruthless efficiency. When you rebelled against the Roman Empire, they took it personally. Took it personally. They didn't just kill you. They tried to destroy you and everyone you knew. Now again, we have in our country a provision, and its purpose was to prevent tyranny. I realize we don't need a 30-round magazine to kill a deer, but that's not what the 30-round magazine is for. Okay. But that aside, I want to, to impress upon you very clearly and very strongly that truth is our first offensive. Truth is our offensive weapon. When it comes to Second Amendment stuff, we don't go rushing into battle, taking people out, being reckless, being foolish, bringing reproach to the church for thoughtless, stupid behavior. Now, if it were a time of war and clear-armed invasion of a domestic or foreign enemy, that's one thing. It's where you say, yes, it is right, it is godly, it is courageous and noble to defend myself, to defend ourselves. It calls for a different kind of courage. But I would say this, beware of falling into company that says that we must rise and through the sword, we must shake off the yoke of our oppressors. Beware of keeping company like that, where people are itching for a fight, 
where people are itching for a war, where they're itching to kill. Beware of keeping company of that sort. Remember, there's offense and there's defense, right? Yes, we have the right, the God-given right to defend, but we have to see this in redemptive and gospel terms. Our offensive weapon is the truth. It is scripture. It is God's word. It is the gospel. That is what changes people. We talked about this last Lord's Day, that the gospel, that, that, that the world is changed through the power of the gospel, not through the power of the rifle. I mean, there's a reason it's called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6. There's a reason Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Above all, we should be known as peacemakers who bring the gospel of peace. Peacemakers, not warmongers. Now, of course, the scriptures do not forbid self-defense. But when that does happen, when, when that becomes a necessity, we must also consider the consequences of defending ourselves. It can bring retribution in unexpected forms. I hate talking about this, but we, hey, at Emmaus Road, we talk about everything, right? We do. Talk about everything. Scriptures do not defend self-defense, but consider the consequences of doing so. Esther 8.11. Remember, Haman had organized a mass extermination, a genocide of the Jews via the word of the king. He took advantage of that. He made, he, he manufactured an unjust law, which would kill off the Jews. So in Esther 8.11, we read this. In the letters, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and eliminate the entire army of any people or province which was going to attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoils. So they had the right. The word was sent ahead in a very speedy manner that, hey, you guys, it, people are coming to kill you. Take up arms and defend yourselves. So they didn't go out and overthrow the Persian Empire. No, they defended life and property, which is one way of expressing the biblical right to private property. So this is not meant to be a proof text, but to demonstrate that God does not always expect his people to simply lay down and be slaughtered. I would say that there are even certain times where it is the Christian who sets the example of courage. That in whatever, whatever capacity we may serve or even be forced into, we do so with excellence. So if you are in the Air Force or the Army, be the best airman or soldier you can possibly be. Because you are a soldier first and foremost for Jesus Christ, not the president. So in whatever state, set an example of courage, of loyalty, and of strength and skill. So again, I'd say this in the context of the conviction that this is a long-term plan. I'm not anticipating a sudden departure of the church. We need to know how to see this through and suffer through it well if God wills. Okay. But remember, not only do we have God's word endorsing self-defense, but the Constitution as well gives certain provisions of self-defense. It gives rights, rights which should be honored and defended insofar as they are consistent with the Christian worldview. Okay. And sometimes that may mean protecting the life and limb in my, of my neighbor because that is loving my neighbor. That takes guts, that takes courage. And a Christian should have guts and courage. But I bring this up because this is a very real possibility, hence the prolonging of this point. Because we are facing particular cultural and social challenges that really threaten the very fabric of our society. We are facing, and it's not just at our front door, it's, it's in the kitchen making a mess. We're facing the threat of communism and social Marxism. It's gaining a lot of traction. But listen to what Vladimir Lenin says. 
We set ourselves the ultimate aim of abolishing the state, i.e. all organized and systemic, systematic violence, all use of violence against people in general. Now, note some context. Communism in its early form was seen as sort of an, it's an economic movement, right? Everything was based on economics. You had the bourgeoisie, you had the proletariat, right? One was oppressing the other. And so it became about, you know, equality and justice for all via equal, equality of outcome. But they saw the upper class, the proletariat did, as the enemy, right? And they had to be overthrown. All organ- so they saw that what they were doing to them as systematic violence. But he says all use of violence against people in general. Okay. But listen to this. We will make our hearts cruel, hard, and immovable so that no mercy will enter them. And so that they will not quiver at the sight of a sea of enemy blood. We will let loose the floodgates of that sea. Without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Oh man, Com- didn't, I thought communism sounded so great. It's the quality of outcome, man. We all live in harmony on communes and share rolls of toilet paper. That sounds, sign me up. But look at what has to happen for this to come about, for this so-called earthly godless utopia where it's paradise, blood, violence, death. This is, what, this is the culture we are facing, and the church has to stand against it, has to expose the evil that this represents. So a few weeks ago I remarked, That insult, that evil speaking and slander against the people of God represents the dying gasp of a defeated enemy. But here's what we have to remember and be vigilant towards. Because the enemy has no reasonable or noble or praiseworthy platform, especially communism, what happens is that they will force the issue finally through physical violence. Usually it's through legalized theft, government-endorsed theft, and then it's physical violence if you do not celebrate what the party or the powers that be represent. You will face physical violence, maybe even death. Death. And so, going out on a limb here, when it comes to defending our neighbor and personal property, that the Christian must set the example of courage to resist that assault. Here's the thing, guys. Worldviews like communism are always in a state of dying. You notice that communism has never really, I don't know, like it's never really captured the global culture. It's always kind of come on, you know, come along, millions of people die, and then it just collapses in on itself. It's inherently a suicidal culture. It's, it's unsustainable. And yet it has, a, it has a, uh, by default, a scorched earth policy where it just takes millions down with it. It demands that you see the world the way they do. You're either with us or you're against us. And always being in a state of dying, all that it does is kill. All that this worldview does is destroy. It destroys everything it touches. We find this in progressivism today. See, certain words are brought to the forefront now to kind of mask the Marxism and communism hiding beneath. But what progressivism says, we just kind of have to forget the past. Everything that's gone before us, you know, it's a, it's a new era. We have to forget God. We have to forget tradition. We have to forget the nuclear family. We have to forget the sanctity of life as we progress toward a united, a united and peaceful civilization. But to do that, apart from the life-giving power of the gospel, will only result in death. And that's all that communism has ever done. So I'm not up here trying to preach a red scare. Right? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to present reality that it's here. 
It's here and it hates Christianity. It's here and it hates any competition, whether in heaven or on earth. At least now we know, history has taught us well, that communism stinks, that it's worthless, that all it does is kill and destroy. And so when it comes to physical resistance, this is what happens when all other favorable options have been exhausted. Remember, communism, cultural Marxism, progressivism, whatever mask or label it wears, it is an enemy on all fronts. It's a constitutional enemy because it denies people basic unalienable rights, but even more importantly, it is partic- it's a theological enemy. It is particularly hostile against Christianity because it continues to assert that you can be as God. It goes back to that initial temptation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent says, you can be as God. Has God said? God has not said. He knows. You can be as God. You can, be, you can deify yourself. That's so appealing to so many of us. But that's what it says. And what does Christianity say? What does the Bible say? There's only one God. And you're made in his image and you're created to serve and love and worship him and tell others about him. But not to be God. What else does it say? It says that man can live by bread alone. Remember, communism is at first an economic thing. All that matters is the stuff I can get. Someone else has stuff. I want that stuff. I deserve that stuff. I must have that stuff. Even if someone has to die, even if blood has to be shed. Man lives by bread alone. Who said that man does not live by bread alone? Jesus. Man does not live by bread alone. But what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is our food. That is our drink. That is our life-sustaining grace. And, the, and this cultural assault that we are facing, call it whatever, call it cultural Marxism, communism, progressivism, it doesn't matter. It seeks to destroy the worldview that says man does not live by bread alone. We need God's word to survive. We need it for life. And this says no. It must be eliminated. It must be destroyed along with all who subscribe to this. So this is serious. Even though it's primarily economic, today's cultural Marxism views any and all kinds, listen to this, of oppressors as dangerous and needing to be eliminated. That's what's going on. And Christianity definitely fits the bill because we advocate personal responsibility. We advocate hard work. We advocate that there is only one God There's only one Savior. There's only one revelation. We're saying that man does not live by bread alone. We're saying that only God can be God. And we say other things. Here's an example that men are called to lead the family. Men are called to lead in the church. That makes us oppressors, proponents of the patriarchy, right? This This is what is happening. And we have in our country many who say all of this and more has to be destroyed. So what I am saying is in the, interest, in the interest of loving your neighbor and the exhaustion of all other options, if one has to fight back, then that is permitted by Scripture. But I'm saying don't run headlong into it. Don't look forward to it, man. You think about it, war is, war is hell. War is not good. There is no, there is no glamour. There's no glamorous thing about men killing men. There isn't. So don't look forward to it. If one can avoid shedding man's blood, then avoid doing so. So this is what I would call the last resort. Are we, are we, are we pretty clear on that, guys? Okay. We never would pray for such a thing. It's 
all done in the interest of self-defense, loving, loving our neighbor. It's not anarchy. Think of 1 Peter 2. We don't use this as a covering for evil, not a government overthrow, not retaliation, but in, but in all things, no matter what level of recourse we take, it all goes toward honoring God and loving our neighbor. That is, that is the law of Christ that we continue to uphold. And remember this, it's the gospel. Our weapon is the gospel. And the gospel cuts to the heart. It does not cut off the head. So remember to maintain that distinction. So one more thing to consider. So those are sort of the more black and white issues. So there's also other issues that, you know, if you, if you listened to James White's sermon at, at, at uh, Apologia Church last Sunday, I would highly recommend it to you. Got some really good stuff from him. So if you hear anything similar, just want to, you know, credit where credit's due. But he mentioned a lot of, a lot of good things, some of which were, you know, were adiaphora, a word he uses. Where it's, it's, adiaphora refers to things that are not condemned in Scripture, but they are not commanded by Scripture as well. And so, what do, you know, what do we do with those things? And one of the examples that he brought up was driving on the right side of the road. So you go to England, they drive on the wrong side of the road. But here, we drive on the right side of the road. So, well, there's no command in God's word to say you must drive on the right side of the road. However, in that driving, driving command is the, the interest of driving in a way where we love our neighbor, right? We don't drive so as to crash into him. So we abide by that rule of the road and drive on the right side of the road. So that would be an example of adiaphora. Um, some, some maybe gray areas that we may think of in terms of, of civil disobedience, I think, well, we have to understand that when we do break certain laws, if they're not in accordance with the word of God, there will be consequences. I want to prepare you for that. Let me give you an example. So there, are, there have been places, especially, I think, I think this happened in the 80s. Maybe someone can correct my history. But I think it was part of Operation Rescue where certain Christians went to abortion centers and they formed a wall. Do I got this right, Pete? They kind of formed a wall so that people could not get into the abortion center. So what ended up happening is that several of the people that were involved in Operation Rescue, even though I would stand back and say they were doing a good thing, they were abiding by the scripture which says, rescue those who are being dragged away to death. They were forming a human wall so that mothers did not go in and dismember their babies. I, I, I cannot find the sin in that. However, they were disobeying on some level a local ordinance and so many of them were arrested. So I bring that example up to say, pick which hills you are going to die on, or in this case, going to be arrested on. Because sometimes you are going to do something which in the eyes of Scripture is good and right and necessary, and you will be arrested for it. And sometimes other Christians will not understand that. So be wise in determining, okay, what, what am I willing to go to jail for? Okay. And that's, so that's an example of that, where... Civil, civil disobedience in the interest of loving one's neighbor, loving those who, are, who cannot defend themselves, is a good thing and yet was seen as uh, frowned upon by the local authorities, and so they were arrested. So just to, just to give that to you. Another thing, um, taxes. We hate taxes. Some of us say taxation is theft, property taxation is piracy. Wherever you, wherever you land on that, you know, I, what's, my, what's, my, what's my counsel to you, okay? Pay your taxes, okay? This is, the, this is a wisdom issue. What hill are you going to die on? Pay your taxes and don't get arrested, okay? You got, you know, fathers, mothers, you got families to raise. Pay your taxes and remain with your family. I know taxation is not fun. Some of us see it as unjust. 
It, it, property tax violates pro private property. I understand all that. But in the interest of, of the bigger picture and walking wisely, pay your taxes. So yeah, do that. Okay. Uh, last thing. Okay, closing, some closing counsel to you guys um, in relationship to our government. First of all, um, pray for our leaders and nation. Continue to be in prayer for our leaders. And I would say in more ways than one, yes, we want to pray for their salvation. We want to pray that they passed unjust laws. But it is also biblically consistent to pray imprecatory prayers. If they continue in their injustice, we, we may pray that God removes them providentially from a position of governance if they continue to pass unjust laws. That has happened many times throughout history. Uh, here's another one. Continue to serve Jesus Christ only. You are to worship the Lord your God, only him you shall worship. We continue to worship Christ as king, as the ruler of the nation, as the one who rules above all earthly authority and who, by his own providential ordination, institutes other earthly authorities. But he's above it. Okay, We worship him, we serve him ultimately alone. We are accountable to him. Here's another one. Speak the truth in love without compromise. We've talked about this. When you speak the truth, when you expose the darkness, do it in a redemptive way. Point them to Christ and his saving work. Point him to his lordship with all the accompanying threats and blessings. Okay. But speak the truth in love. Uh, uh, fourthly, be vigilant and involved. Know what's coming down the pike on a local level. You know, it's helpful for churches to have someone who's among the congregation who's willing to be aware and inform the church as to what kind of laws are being passed within our city. It's part of walking wisely. Fifthly, this is very, very important. It's, <laughs> in the midst of all this, stick together. Not just this church. This is where it begins. But with other like-minded churches, I know where there's just a, a plethora of different views of, 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 of doctrine, especially as it pertains to the end times. There's a lot of stuff about the end times being talked about today. What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen with our society? Where the, you know, what's going to happen with, the, with our gospel ministry in this town and in our country? Okay? It's important that we, instead of looking for opportunities to backbite and to cast petty remarks at people that we stick together and stand for the cause of Christ. So important. Knowing that the Lord will continue to strengthen us and bless us. We can count on that. And I think I would like to close with this, that I, I believe that we can continue to anticipate very good things. You know, I think I, I look forward. I'm excited at what the Lord is going to do in the days ahead, in the years ahead. He is going to bless the work of the gospel. He is going to purify his church. He is going to continue to call unbelievers to himself. We can fully expect, even in our day, to see God's kingdom advance in a visible, powerful way. But let's do that standing together as the people of God and look forward to good things. Close with these lyrics from the band Petra called Arms and, Armed and Dangerous. A good charge for the church today. Stand up against the flood, stand covered by his blood. We are the standard he has raised. Stand, earnestly contend, stand to the very end. We've only just begun to fight. Armed and dangerous, God's enemies will scatter. 
armed and dangerous, will see the darkness shatter. His armor is worth its weight. No weapon can penetrate. Armed and dangerous, we're ready to storm the gate. Hell will fall, I guarantee it. And the church will be on the front lines watching it happen. So I'm excited to be a part of that, and I hope you are too. No matter who is in power, we recognize that ultimately it is Jesus Christ, and we serve him and proclaim him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word. I pray that we would continue to honor you, that we would uh, look at what the scriptures offer in terms of, of recourse, uh, of interacting with our elected officials, that we would understand that part of being a faithful steward of the gospel is to hold them accountable. Can, can we say that we are loving them as our neighbor and continue to be silent? And I, I would say no, and I pray that you would bring us that conviction that we would uh, proclaim your word in perhaps ways that, and in, and in uh, forums that we never considered before. We want to be effective, God. We want to be a faithful people. We want to uphold just laws that facilitate our call to love you above all things, but also to love our neighbor, to pursue one another's highest good without, without interference, without laws prohibiting us to promote Christ's likeness in one another. But you've given us a voice, Lord. We do know good being silent. If we want to lead a tranquil, tranquil and peaceful life, sometimes that means making some noise but to make noise in a fashion that is, uh, is loving and redemptive and yet truthful. And Lord, we know you've equipped us with everything we need to be faithful to that end. So we continue to pray for our elected officials, whether just or unjust, that they would know you, the true and living God, and be faithful to you. And most of all, that they would trust and love Jesus Christ, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, our blessed Savior,